Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us for this week's SCLT and Tech Weekly Discussion. Hopefully you all know what you're here for, about half an hour's discussion of what's gone on in the tech and law news in the last week. I'm Neil. I run a law firm, Decoded Legal, and you're going to hear very little from me today because I'm just here to represent, uh, to welcome, host three fantastic panellists. Uh, I am delighted to be joined. Um, as I say, three panellists. First of all, we have Rowena Fielding. Uh, Rowena is an experienced, wise data protection expert. She runs her own consultancy, Miss Info Geek Limited. Uh, she's not a lawyer. Nobody's perfect. Rowena, thank you for joining us today. Joining us all the way from Nashville, we have Tara, Tara Aronstilito. Tara is a brilliant trademark internet and privacy lawyer. She's my go-to person for US-related legal matters. I say she's based in Nashville. She's a US lawyer. Yeah, everyone's perfect either, I guess. And last of all, close, from Nash, from close, pretty close. Um, and lastly, from Nashville, but joining us from London, we have Jessica Sherson. Jessica's a PhD candidate at Queen Mary. She's looking at cross-border access to data by law enforcement. She used to be an assistant district attorney, attorney, attorney in Memphis, in Tennessee. And um, so I'm not really brave enough to say, but no one's perfect to her either. But three fantastic panelists, Rowena, Tara and Jessica, they're going to talk through the bits that we've got on the agenda today. There are four things they're going to talk about. NFTs, non-fungible tokens, ICRs, internet connection records, spam, and if we have a few minutes at the end, sex. Just a reminder that while they're talking, the chat panel is open. So please do feel free to chip in, share your thoughts, ask any questions that you might have. And there will be time at the end for Q&A if you want to ask questions. This session is being recorded so that we can make it available to people who couldn't join us today. Before we get on to the main event, quick reminder, the next event in the SCL program is after the Easter holidays. It's on the 15th. Um, at least that's what my script says. Uh, Simon's slide is something slightly different. I've been told the next event's on the 15th. It's a joint one with British Computer Society. The debate title is on the proposition, the House would prefer to be governed by algorithm direct rather than by politicians who are not ICT professionals and who have never coded software to deliver a functionally useful algorithm for any customer or user. Um, 15th of April, before that, the SEL Trainee Lawyers Group IT contracts, where can problems happen? All the details for those are on the SCL website, so please do feel free to take a look, see if you'd like to join. Enough from me, over to our wonderful panelists. We're going to start off by talking about NFTs. I think that's yours to start with, Tara. It is. Good morning from Nashville, Tennessee, middle of the country over here. Um, so this was kind of the thing that was taking over my Twitter feed in the last week anyway. Um, NFTs, as Neil said, non-fungible tokens. They've actually been around since 2017, but for whatever reason, kind of on the heels of, um, I, I don't know, I think it's all sort of related to the GameStop craze of a couple of weeks ago and Bitcoin and Dogecoin and all the other things that everyone thinks are going to make them rich right now, but um, NFTs are having an, another heyday. Um, the best way to describe what a non-fungible token is, I think, is definitely is is basically a certificate of authenticity for whatever the digital asset is that you're buying. And 
we have understood certificates of authenticity for physical assets like art, um, like cars, for example, like anything else that you might buy in, in the physical world for a while. And we also understand the idea of limited edition. Um, but I think what NFTs are really trying to do in the digital world um, comes with a whole number of problems. Um, for one thing, a certificate of authenticity for a digital work is fine. You can have a limited edition of a pro of an album, for example, if we're talking about music. And we understand that people buy limited editions and they come with extra bells and whistles. And this week, Kings of Leon um, announced that they were going to put out um, their album. Uh, the biggest problem, I think, being that nobody seems to like the album. But they're going to put the album out as an NFT and they're going to offer up, up to 500 this way and then one of them is going to have a golden ticket and it's going to have perpetual front seat concert tickets for life for whoever ends up with that one and that's fun and it's a nice little contest and again limited edition album is fine the problem is that they're putting it out on spotify and pandora and all of the other platforms for everyone else to get access to at exactly the same time so the, this idea that we're creating scarcity what we're creating is scarcity of the certificates of authenticity, but we can't possibly be creating scarcity of the digital files. And again, all of this would be fine if we're talking about, you know, somebody spending $50 on a, on a limited edition album from Kings of Leon, but somebody just spent $69 million at a Christie's auction on a digital file from an artist named People. <laughs> when we start talking about it at that level, it just seems to me, like originally when I started looking at this, I was like, okay, I just don't get it. But it's not that I don't get it. It's that it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so why would someone want an NFT? Because it's sexy. Because it's new. Like, I, I mean, I can't think of, I mean, I really do think that there are a lot of people in this market who don't really understand what it is that they're getting. And what's been really interesting is that there's been a lot, you know, you say that you own this original digital file. Well, that definition of ownership comes with a lot of caveats. <laughs> and so you don't really, I mean, you either own it or you don't. And for the most part, you don't. I mean, you can't, you can transfer it if you can find somebody else who finds an asset with an NFT attached to it valuable. But the market is seriously diluted because there are an infinite number of copies of a digital file, right? You can't, a lot of times you can't modify it. Um, you can't make changes to it. There are all kinds of limitations that come from that technique that are attached in the smart contract that transfers that file to the, to the new owner. So it's not even real ownership. We have a question that's come through from the chat from Marcus. NFT, is this a certificate of authenticity or a certificate of ownership or both? It is a, it is a certificate that, a certificate that lives on the blockchain that indicates that purchaser's ownership of that copy and that record, because it lives on the blockchain, is immutable and permanent in the ledger until it is transferred. And we so are the is yes quickly no. exhausting my understanding of blockchain. So if someone else <laughs> wants to. <laughs> Rowena, did you want to come in here? I was just going to say, is it me or is it that this is something 
some great idea about how to make money without actually doing any work. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of that. What, the, what, what, the, the, the sellers, I, that makes perfect sense to me. It's the buyers I don't understand. <laughs> and, and there was this great thread on Twitter just a couple of days ago by a guy named Johnny, John, I'm sorry, Jaunty, J-O-N-T-Y, wearing. So if you're interested in sort of the technology behind how this works, it was fantastic. But eventually, essentially, he was pointing out that when you get this, and if it's a token, right? Um, so, so you get this NFT token, and I, I don't know what it looks like. I haven't really seen one, but essentially it's a, a link that takes you to a URL. And oftentimes that URL is a JSON file. And then that leads to the actual file that's living on the server of whatever marketplace you purchase this through um, or whatever startup you purchased it through. The problem is we don't know how... I mean, this is a very immature market right now. We don't know how long it's going to last. Like I said, it showed up in 2017 and a whole bunch of people bought CryptoKitties and then it disappeared again. Um, and so how long is this going to last and how well are these startups going to do that are hosting your files that you've just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy? So it's kind of like buying a piece of art and then storing it in your distant cousin's warehouse and he forgets to pay the bill. And the consequence of that bill not being paid is that the warehouse self-destructs and you have no asset anymore. It's the best way that I can think of to describe it. So it just seems to be loaded with, with issues. So it's good, right? It involves the blockchain. <laughs> right. So it must be, it solves everything. So it's a very early this time around anyway. Um, and there's a professor at, uh, Penn State, no, I'm sorry, at University of Pennsylvania, Tanya Evans, who's done a lot of writing about how this has the potential to open up direct-to-consumer markets to a lot of populations that otherwise would be shut out of those markets. And I'm certainly willing to um, listen to those arguments. I, I tried to read her paper this morning, but it's it's paywalled, so I have to figure out how to get access to it. So <laughs> you just but. buy an NFT for it. You're right. <laughs> I can offer her, you know, my $2 in Bitcoin. To to it. 65 million, that's quite a paywall. Um, so Lawrence has kindly popped into comments that the NFT is a bit like a certificate for a limited edition print. Um, right. Perhaps not the print itself, just the certificate. But, um, right. The certificate is limited. The print is not. Yeah. But Jessica. That's, that's sort of the thing that my question is, is this just another asset? Is it just another type of crypto? You know, because it doesn't, you're not really getting ownership, like you said, of anything but the certificate of the token itself. And so it just raises all of the same issues, I think, that, that cryptos raise. What yes, I'm hearing from this overall is we should do a dedicated event on NFTs, <laughs> what they are and what the legal implications are. Um, it yeah. sounds like there's plenty, plenty to go into. There. There's plenty to go um, into. Mm -hmm. I would amazing. love to be convinced. But... That may need quite a long event. Um, Tara, thank you for talking us through NFTs. We keep on with the acronyms. Next up, we have ICRs and Jessica. Yeah, so um, an ICR is an inter internet connection record. Um, and I'm a lawyer, not a tech person. So... 
I'm going to try to explain what I think these are. Um, Neil can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, but essentially, anytime a computer connects to the internet via your phone, uh, your computer when you're on a browser or a Zoom call or whatever, it, connect, it connects and creates a record of that connection. And this includes browsing histories, at least the first part of the web address, um, maybe not the whole web address. Um, and according to the Investigatory Powers Act, uh, law enforcement, national security agencies in the UK can get these internet connection records um, for their investigations. But one of the, um, out this week, I should say, is, is a new article in Wired um, that, how, how do they get these records, right? That's the question. Um, and for the last two years, they've been trialing a process with uh, telecommunications operators in the UK. And these are the UK-based service providers. So um, Virgin, BT, Sky, no one knows exactly which ones because they can't say, um, have been trialing a um, surveillance technology that basically collects everyone's internet connection records and then retains those records so that then when they get an order from um, the National Crime Agency or whomever uh, for the ICR, they can then uh, deliver that ICR. The, 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 there's so many issues surrounding um, a capability like this. My first thought of, upon reading this article, um, and I can I can drop it into the chat so that everyone else can have the pleasure of, of reading this and being. Um, it's, a, it's a very good article, isn't it? It's a very it balanced is. article looking yeah. at it, that it talks both about what the capability uh, allegedly is and what it is, and talks through some of the legal issues associated with that part of the Investigatory Powers Act framework. Yeah, yeah, it, I, I do think it is balanced. I mean, I the the powers themselves are one question, and then whether or not this is a good way um, and a fair way for service providers, especially, um, to have to implement these capabilities is another issue. So first, I think there's going to be some issues around, um, you know, whether it's proportional and when we look at some of the cases that have come out recently of the Court of Justice of the European Union, which the UK is no longer a member of, but all of this will come back around, right, for adequacy and might give us a preview into what the what the Court of Justice might think about any future um, Shrems lawsuits against the UK, um, that it really is a massive data retention scheme. Um, and they have been struck down by the CJEU um, in Privacy International and Digital Rights Ireland for law enforcement. So I think that's one of the first issues that I thought of. But I also think it's such a massive program for these telecommunications operators, um, massively expensive for them to retain this data that they hadn't otherwise been retaining. Um, and that brought up questions for me about why do the internet connection records need to come from these companies? Are there other ways that they can go about getting this data? Um, under, of course, the legal framework of the IPA. Um, and so, yeah, I think also there's issues with the fact that 
we don't really know what's going on with this trial and this surveillance technology and what exactly it's doing because all of this is kept confidential by the service providers. They're not even allowed to talk to each other about it. So there's issues with efficacy and security. Um, and, and then that we come back to this, this um, long-standing debate about metadata versus content data and whether or not we're comfortable with these companies retaining all of our internet connection records and then the process to get those ICRs is not the double lock warrant that they would have to use for content data. So I definitely think it's something that's been a long time coming. We've already know we've always known this is coming, but it's kind of um, to see it in print and to see the fact that you know my my internet service provider is one of the companies who refuses to comment and think they might be collecting every internet connection record. Um, yeah. So we've got, I, I know Tara's definitely got views on the UK getting adequacy um, <laughs> sitting, sitting, there, sitting there as a US lawyer. Um, hmm. <laughs> can, I mean, can I just come in on that very quickly? Okay. I mean, if there's anyone here who's not familiar with the Schrems 2 decision, the Court of European Justice said that the uh, US could not, did not have adequate privacy laws and that a number of the other data transfer mechanisms for transferring EU sub subjects, data subjects information from the EU to the US were inadequate, largely because of the NSA cell phone spying program that Edward Snowden uh, disclosed to the world back in 2015. And the um, ability for the US government to um, get through now, now that that NSA program has been, has been quashed, through warrants, um, get uh, American cell phone records and and or any other data from uh, and from from foreign nationals as well. Any other data that's housed in the United States, just with a, a what's called a FISA warrant, and that was enough to eliminate um, the U.S., which obviously is a significant market <laughs> from from EU data transfers, which has just thrown businesses both in the EU and the US into complete disarray in terms of trying to figure out. I mean, it blew up business when that decision came out and we still have not worked out the, the solutions yet. And I mean, there's no way, as far as I can see, to differentiate that decision in, in Schrems 2 from what they should do you know, in Schrems 3 or whatever the decision is in terms of UK adequacy. And so my question really is, I mean, didn't the, didn't the government know that? Like, couldn't they see this coming? Like, wouldn't they have taken that into consideration? Also, oh my God, what an insane program thing. And then I'll stop. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, there, um, I'm not a lawyer. I used to be a techie geek, but I evolved out of the server room. Um, and I'm into kind of psychology and philosophy and things these days. But two questions for um, about this are, Firstly, um, isn't this just the new Cardinal Richelieu for you know the 21st century? Show me six ITRs from the browsing history of any innocent person and I will find something with which to hang them. Um, there's a massive confirmation bias issue looking back at somebody who's already under suspicion without comparing to other people who aren't under suspicion um, and then not not automatically assuming they should be if there are points of commonality. And then the second one is how long before this gets used for predictive profiling? 
if it isn't already. Um, and there are big issues with that because uh, one person's idea of what a normal, good, decent citizen, um, sh- how they should behave is not necessarily the next normal, good, decent citizen's idea of how they should behave. So um, it's it's one it's a Dr. Malcolm uh, moment in Jurassic Park, isn't it? Your, your data scientists were so uh, concerned with whether they could, they didn't stop to think about whether they should. Um, it, it just all looks like a horrible mess waiting to explode to me. Right. Pat Walsh has put out a privacy matters on Twitter. Pat put a question on there saying the ICR proposals are surely disproportionate and unjustified. And I think that perhaps ties in with what you're saying, Tara and Jessica. And dystopian. And, and <laughs> I mean, if we can't, you know, the, the European idea of what privacy is has always been better developed and more um more well codified and constitutional in a way that it's not in the US. It's much more scattershot here. But if you can't be protected from the government, like, so what's the point of any of it? I mean, Jessica, you were talking about there's issues of security. Well, like, who cares if somebody else has it, if the government can get it? Like, (laughs) and when that government seems to be, sidestepping, swerving and degrading checks and balances on democratic controls anyway, I think this is the sort of thing that should um, raise a lot of pushback uh, because assuming that technology is always and only going to be used by the good guys for good purposes in a way that benefits all. I mean, that's just shockingly naive. You just have to look at history. Every tool can also be repurposed as a weapon. And what's a, what's a tool for good for some people is a weapon against others. Yeah. I, I will say, I think um, just to, to sort of uh, share everyone's concerns, I do want to take a step back to try to make the other argument a little bit, which is that internet connection records aren't just about web browsing history, and they might include the ability to locate someone. So, for example, the IPA... Um, I think it's the code of practice discusses that internet connection records can be something that can be used to locate um, the the phone of a missing person because you can look at what how they connected to the internet to place. So so I I think that this is a really broad category of um, data, and to to me I think that you know investigators should be able to get data like this, but I'm not sure that the procedures that are currently in place are adequate to, to forget that I'm talking to a former ADA. (laughs) I like to try to be a bit balanced um, when I talk about these issues, because, because I do remember what it's like to, to be, um, you know, on the other side with, with victims and and their families. Sure. Um, Absolutely. What is it? Yeah. I'm interested in carrying this forward. Sorry. Can we say that Jessica, so far, you and I are going to do this again. <laughs> oh probably, probably not too convinced about NFTs so far. Don't sound hugely convinced about ICRs. Well, was there any good news in the world of spam? Yes, 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 yes. Um, so uh, this week, actually, we are we have taken another step against uh, robocalls. Is this a problem in the UK? 
Yes. We are. Okay. All right. Yes. We are inundated. Um, in my part of the world, it's mostly about car warranties, but we are absolutely inundated with robocalls and spam calls um, all the time. And there was the largest fine. Um, I'm sorry. I'm trying to pull up the article while we, while we talk here, there was the largest fine ever um, issued by the federal communications commission here against some telemarketers in Texas. It was a fine of $225 million. Um, it wasn't, the the uh, the fine wasn't nearly because they were doing robocalls, but what they were actually doing was spoofing the phone numbers of contacts in people's phones so that they would answer the phone, um, and as opposed to just letting it go to voicemail because it was an unknown number. So it would be you know some someone's daughter's number or someone's you know brother's number or whatever, and then trying to sell them what turned out to be fake health insurance plans. So there was fraud sort of on every level, which I think made a difference. Um, this was not sort of your run of the mill um, robocalling. Um, and so I, that, that made a huge difference. But out because of that case and because there's and there's always a new push at the beginning of a new administration to take care of this issue, because it's one of the few bipartisan things left in the United States. Everybody hates robocalls. Um, but she, the, the Federal Communications Commission is putting together a, um, a, a task force of like, I think 50, a 50 person task force um, to sort of look at this issue and find out where the loopholes are in the laws and then put a report together to try and see if we can get those fixed. So I can't say that robocalling is going to end anytime soon, but we might, at least on this side of the ocean see see a significant decrease in the next couple of years, which would be welcomed by all. So is so. robocalling legal in the US? Because in the uh, UK under PECA, um, it's just not legal unless there's explicit prior consent. So we have a... <laughs> We have an opt-out system as opposed to an opt-in system, but it doesn't really work. And I'll be completely honest, I'm not an expert on the do not call uh, list laws, um, but it it was, and you know, everyone signs up for it and you still get all of these calls. So there are clearly, well, there are clearly people who were just simply acting illegally. But then I think that there also are significant loopholes in the laws in terms of I don't know when they can call or, or maybe it doesn't cover recorded calls. Maybe it only covers live calls. Like I'm, I'd have to go and look and I haven't yet, but all I know is less spam is good. We have a question in question from Terence Eden. Uh, Eden T on Twitter runs an excellent blog. If you don't already read and follow him, his question, can we sue phone networks when they knowingly carry fake numbers? I get that they have to connect calls in a neutral fashion, but if they know a number is spoofed, Surely they're responsible. Yeah, they don't actually have to carry it. And there have been um, there have been not fines yet issued against the carriers, but cease and desist letters sent by the Federal Communications Commission to make them make them not do that. So My guess is that there's going to be some negotiation that goes on about what sort of resources they have to put to that, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it, it is yes, is the short answer that that is their responsibility without wanting to step outside the role of just hosting uh, my wonderful speakers this week. In the UK, Ofcom has tried to uh, sort of put more rigour around the process for spoofed presentation numbers via CLI, not aware of any litigation against telcos and the cause of action, the thing that you'd sue them for isn't immediately obvious. Uh, but 
I'd probably say that as a telco lawyer. Yeah, I don't know of any private right of action, right, private cases here, um, but in terms of government action against them, um, which is really what it's going to take, um, it's it's starting now. The wheels are turning. So, but, but good news on spam overall. Yes. Uh, this week. And less good news in the world of sex. Um, Rowena. <laughs> Uh, actually, to tie those two topics together, um, spam I and sex, spam and sex, highly recommend. I'm nervous. Everybody reads Rule Thirty Four by Charles Stross. AI spam and sex, um, well worth a read. Very funny. Um, yes, sex. Sex is in the news again, and for all the wrong reasons. Um, that is not uh, joyful, consensual, intimate activity, but the never-ending parade of stories about how mostly women are sexually assaulted by mostly men. Um, hashtag not all. And uh, in Australia, a police force came up with the brilliant not idea of uh, having an app for that, which is uh, an app that uh, that could record consent and therefore presumably legitimize any and all sexual activity that followed on from that consent being given um, question mark, regardless of whether or not the person changed their mind. I mean, there are so many things that are wrong with this. Um, not surprisingly, um, the that <laughs> the, the idea was uh, put by the the police commissioner, who is you know, a fifty something white guy, who probably isn't uh, among the demographic to have had first hand experience of what it's like when you revoke your consent and the other party decides to ignore that revocation, which is you know a big part of the issue here. Um, consent is not uh, consent in sexual activity is not a legal issue until it's ignored. So by going into it with the premise that you want deniability or, you know, um, or uh, supporting evidence to say that you got it, that that's kind of a, a really dodgy starting point um, because that is that's tech solutionism. That's um, let's use technology to avoid doing thinking and having empathy and conversations and respect for the other person person um so yeah it's a bloody stupid idea excuse my french <laughs> sorry <laughs> i get very heated about this topic it's a darn stupid idea but i'm pretty sure that isn't going to stop the uh there being a, a space in fact there already are consent apps in app stores all over the place um which seem to be mostly aimed at uh young men who want to avoid false allegations um, by getting the other person to declare up front that they're down for X, Y, and Z. And as I said earlier, that doesn't really work because you can't put consent on the blockchain. Um, consent is revocable. Otherwise, it is not consent. Um, and while there are various parameters defined in various laws for what consent in that context should look like, in the context of intimate activity, consent must be revocable. And it's the responsibility of all parties to make sure that they're keeping an eye and an ear out for indications of revocation of consent or, you know, better yet, enthusiastic uh, giving of consent without 
coercion or pressure. Um, so yeah, this is just another in a long line of tech bros coming up and saying, um, I've made an app for something that wouldn't be necessary if we could all just behave ourselves like civilized human beings. It brings to mind as a lawyer, all kinds of issues about, um, well, I hate to use the word consent in this context, but two-party consent as to the recording. Do those women know that those conversations are being recorded? And I'm assuming that we're talking about women giving consent to, to men. I mean, I realize it can go in a number of different ways, but yes, that's that's the, the common scenario. Do they know that they're being recorded? Um, are they being tricked into saying, yeah, I want that when the guy's talking to her about, you know, whether she wants a drink as opposed to, you know, going to bed with him? Um in this world that we live in of, you know, deep fakes and everything else, like, is it going to be manufactured? I mean, there's all kinds of, of issues that are straight on legal issues that that brings up. Yeah. I think it's just, a, it's ripe for fraud. Um, because in, in my prior experience as a, as an ADA, I did prosecute rape cases. And if, if, the perpetrator is forcing the victim to have sex, they can force them to consent on the app too. You know, I mean, it's just, there's so many problems with the consent app. Fundamentally misunderstanding what consent is, is the primary one, but also just that it can't be an app. That's just not, we can't, you know, solve every problem with tech. And yeah, especially this one. We have an excellent question that's come through. Um, could that not also cause problems in terms of the app having a cohesive record of someone's sexual preferences and activity, which could be maliciously used by an ex-partner in the same way that nudes are weaponized? Absolutely. And I think, um, while, while that's definitely um, a real use, use case for a proportion of people out there, there's also the secondary thing, which is, you know, if the app is like pretty much all apps are built on an ad tech funding model, then um, not only does potentially the the, the partner ex partner get access to a record of that person's sexual activity preferences etc., so do a few thousand advertising networks who um, you know have no problem with weaponizing that kind of information. Um, and um, we know that that's mainstream. Look at the Grinder um, consent case. Um, which is about consent to the processing of third of data by transferring it to unnamed and invisible third parties, not consent for sex. Um, but yeah, there's there's more ways to abuse this uh, this model of uh, recording in this context for recording information than there are to to uh, to use it beneficially. And for that reason, I think it needs to go in the bin, and so should everybody who thinks it's a good idea. <laughs> Wonderfully clear views there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Rowan. They're not without opinions, this crew. So. You can tell I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> We've run a few minutes over time, thanks to some fantastically interesting discussions and some wonderful questions. Thank you for those who submitted those. And thank you in particular, Rowena, Tara, Jessica. Thank you for taking the time to talk us through those issues today. Um, if you're watching this at home or in, in the office, if you've enjoyed it, there is no charge for this event, but the SCL has a buy me a coffee link. All the money for that doesn't go to coffee. It's hugely misleading. It all goes back into the SCL student activities. So if you'd like to make a donation, please feel free. There's absolutely no pressure to do so. 
If you've enjoyed this session, you can go back in time. The sessions are recorded, so have a look at the SCL website, scl.org slash tandtech, and you can see the sessions that were recorded previously. And of course, you can join us again next week. Uh, I won't be hosting. Your normal host, David, will be back. He'll be joined by Matthew Lavy, Rebecca Keating, and Ashley Winton, covering whatever issues go on next week. But my thanks again. Thank you, Rowena. Thank you, Tara. Thank you very much, Jessica. Um, and thank you all for joining. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Happy Friday, all. Bye.